All right. Good morning. It is a terrifying privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, I realized this week that I have been dreading this moment for 18 years. Since I was a freshman in those seats and it occurred to me, what if they ask me to speak up there someday? So exactly half of my life I have been dreading this moment. Uh, but now that I'm here, it seems to me proof of God's goodness to me. This is really very special to be with you this morning. <clears throat> so I know you've already heard from a number of the faculty on this question, and the talks have been deeply encouraging to me. I hope they have been to you as well. I could echo many of the sentiments and ideas that have been shared, uh, but I do feel that there are a few really salient theological insights that have not yet been duly explicated. Uh, so I'm going to highlight just a few essential points for you this morning. I am still a Christian because I play Zelda. Yeah. Because I garden. And because I read poetry. Now, I trust that some of this has been covered in your doctrine courses, but if you'll bear with me, perhaps it merits further explanation. The first hint that I'll give you, which might help you navigate this list, is that none of these things are what made me a Christian. But in the wake of that transformative encounter with Jesus, God has used them to sustain and enrich my faith. So yes, this is really what I'm about to talk about. <laughs> Let's take a step back first. Perhaps it will make more sense if I assert to you that I am still a Christian because I can say with the author of Hebrews that I have been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now the witnesses that Hebrews is talking about here in chapter 11 and 12 are people who by faith remember and cling to God's promises. They cling to the story that God has told them. These are people whose very lives point to and participate in the cosmic story of God's creative and redemptive work in Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So I'm here to tell you that I am still a Christian because I have been surrounded by so great a cloud of storytellers people and things that first taught me to love God's story and then continue to tell me that story over and over again in a way that invites me into it. So I'm going to tell you my part of the story. We begin with the prologue in which I am taught to love a story against my will and without my knowledge. Thanks be to God. I was born to Christian parents and I honestly feel like I've always known Jesus in the same way that I've always known my parents and my brother. I don't distinctly remember meeting any of them. They've just always been a part of my life, and my relationships with each of them have grown and changed over the years. Let me tell you, I have an amazing family. My parents are intelligent, generous, adventurous, and charitable people. They love God, and they love his world. They were eager to share God's story with me and with my brother. 
and one of us was quite receptive to that story. Hint, it was my brother. I don't think it's unfair to describe my child self as stubbornly illiterate. I hated to read. I didn't even enjoy being read too. I was a rough and tumble, fearless, active, ungovernable mess. Yeah. yeah. Here's to the messes out there. My brother Trey, on the other hand, was naturally erudite. And if you think that's hyperbolic, it's only because you haven't met him. I remember suffering through many an evening of family reading, whether it was of scripture or the Chronicles of Narnia or the Wind in the Willows, just wondering what my brother found so interesting about all of it, except for the pictures, but there were never enough pictures. My whole family seems to me to be piously repressed, <laughs> pretending to be excited about things that were in truth inherently boring. All those words stamped rigidly on those pages, they struck me as daunting and dim. But my parents persisted. They kept putting things in front of me to reinforce God's story, and stories more generally. And the stories were sinking in. There are still images and smells, tactile memories of that time that transport me back to when I was being formed. Things that stick in my mind are the many pictures in my beginner's Bible, which I enjoyed most in moments of solitary contemplation without anyone forcing me to read or hear all those pesky words. I could just look at the pictures. I remember the cover of my adventure Bible the way the pages crinkled when I drew my fingers across them. I remember flickering candles that we would light each night of Advent as my parents led us through devotions in preparation for Christmas. I remember experiencing jubilation at the 90s worship music in my suburban church and quietly feasting my eyes on those shiny stackable communion sets that the elders would use to pass the sacrament around once a month. These were one of the few aesthetically interesting objects in our relatively unadorned church. My father was an elder, and I always felt immense reverence when I saw him in his suit distributing the elements. All of these things, which I found kind of mysteriously beautiful, were, without my knowledge, inviting me into God's story. My mind struggled to focus conceptually on the words of Scripture, which, frankly, when they ceased to bore me, perplexed me with stories about taboo subjects like sex and violence and oozy skin rashes. <laughs> but I responded to these tactile experiences, which allowed me to use my body and my imagination to observe God's story unfolding and to taste, touch, see, hear, and smell it. I was not part of a family or a church that I would describe as particularly liturgical, but there was a rhythm that amounted to liturgy, a steady repetition of the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration in our daily prayers and reading, our weekly worship, our monthly communion, and our yearly celebrations of Christmas and Easter. When I look back on my childhood, Oh, no, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I now realize at that time that God was using my family and my church to immerse me in his story. It was sinking into the very fabric of my being. This was an outworking of God's grace in my life, for which I am very thankful. 
Uh, but I was far too dense to recognize it yet. That took years of maturation and many hours of gaming. So now we get to chapter one, in which I become the hero of time. We all have those stories that define late childhood and early adolescence, the ones that awaken the deep, unquenchable longing for something beyond our grasp. For many of you, it was probably Harry Potter or the Lord of the Rings. For me, it was the Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time. If you've never played this game, I don't know that I can begin to explain to you the depth with which it spoke to young Heather's soul, and it still does. In this game, I become the child Link, called from a bucolic state of innocence into the wide, dangerous world to join forces with Princess Zelda on a quest to become the hero of time and protect the land of Hyrule from the threat of evil. I loved inhabiting this powerful child who could do things that I longed to do, things that had existential significance. In this game, you get to be an adorable little kid and an epic hero, a warrior and a composer of melodies with magical properties. I have now passed an appreciation for the soundtrack down to my children. Link is a traveler in time and space. He's a friend to diverse characters from far-flung lands, and ultimately, he's the redeemer of a fallen world. At the time, it filled me with divine discontent. I ardently wished that it were real. It sent me on a phase of feeling like I had two different lives. I had the boring, prosaic reality of which my Christian walk was a part, and I had the fantasy scape of Hyrule, which presented me with a purely imaginary representation of beauty in which I just wanted to lose myself. My predicament was not unlike C.S. Lewis's in Surprised by Joy, when he explains his mind pre-conversion. He says, quote, the two hemispheres of my mind were in the sharpest contrast. On the one side, a many-islanded sea of poetry and myth, on the other, a glib and shallow rationalism. Nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. Now, for me, substitute just the word boring for grim and meaningless. I didn't necessarily think it was meaningless, I just thought it was boring. The difference between Lewis and I, of course, is that he was describing his experience as an atheist while I'm describing part of my Christian walk. For me, the over-intellectualization of my faith had turned even personal piety into a rational exercise rather than a whole person encounter with my creator. I thought being a Christian was about knowing the right things, having the catechism ready to hand, and knowing all Ten Commandments so as to avoid breaking them. The flashes of awe and joy that I experienced in worship seemed to me added bonus, but by no means integral. I was mistaking knowledge about God for loving the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength in addition to my mind. It was not until my time here at Covenant that I fully realized that these two hemispheres of my mind were meant to operate in unison. It slowly dawned on me that the stories I loved, first Zelda, then the Lord of the Rings, then a whole universe of literature, these stories were beautiful not because they were 
different from reality, but because they reflected pieces of a great true story of which we are all part. I generally found that the stories that told the most truth were also the most beautiful, and that's because they reflected God's story so vibrantly. My continually expanding cloud of storytellers now included saints like C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Patricia Ralston, William Tate, Charlotte Bronte, yeah, Kelly Capick, Gwen McAllister, and George MacDonald. MacDonald argues that because humans are made in the image of a maker, the fairy tales we create offer, quote, new embodiments of old truths. Tolkien echoes this. He suggests that fairy stories, quote, reflect a splintered fragment of the true light. I can now say of Zelda what C.S. Lewis said of MacDonald's fiction, that the quality which had enchanted me in these imaginative works turned out to be the quality of the real universe, the divine, magical, terrifying, and ecstatic reality in which we all live. Journeying to Hyrule was not so much an escape from reality as an opportunity to regain a clear view and return to the over-familiar people and places and things of daily life with fresh attention. Today I can see that this game was awakening in me a longing not for something imaginary, but for something infinitely more real. The Zelda games embrace a kind of sumptuous nostalgia that impresses me with the intact though tarnished, goodness of creation. And it makes me ache for new creation. My desire to be link whispers of a deeper need to be transformed into the image of a redeemer. I have followed the Zelda franchise through several iterations. I'm currently savoring Tears of the Kingdom. And I can attest that God has used these games to bring me into fresh encounters with his story. And if you know me at all, this may actually explain a lot about me. Fairy tales, child protagonists, and it really always comes back to that romantic Rukin figure, doesn't it? Yeah, take Chow too. Take Chow too. you'll see. So I might ask you, have you played Zelda? You should. But really, I think the better question is where in your life do you experience beauty? Have you thought about where that beauty is coming from? Have you thought about what it's pointing you towards? In The Soul of Desire, Kurt Thompson explains that, quote, beauty is what we sense when we apprehend that which is genuinely good, that which is living into its divinely appointed purpose, Good food, music, or surgical work can each be described as beautiful when we behold the presentation of the dishes and taste the fullness of their flavor, or hear the movement from tension to resolution in a concerto, or view the precision and near invisibility of suture lines. Where in your life are you experiencing the kind of beauty that invites you in to welcome and wonder? to taste and see that the Lord is good. God's good story is unfolding around you, my friends. And you get to participate in it when you enjoy and when you create the kind of beauty that reflects God's creative and redemptive work. 
I hope that sounds compelling. But I also realize that it might strike you as idealistic. Is beauty really the thing that characterizes this world? Many of you didn't experience the kind of happy childhood I just described. Many of us come from broken homes, broken church communities. All of us experience broken bodies and minds and hearts, the loss of people and things that we love. Despite all our technological and cultural advancements, we're living in a moment of soul-shriveling materialism, terrible cruelty, social isolation, political hatred, all of this in a world in which we've sown the seeds of our potential ruin via environmental devastation or incomprehensibly destructive weapons. We're witnessing senseless abuse and murder of innocent civilians in war-torn places. We're cognizant of vast trafficking networks that kidnap and enslave human beings who bear God's image. We feel helpless in the face of such expansive wickedness not to mention the insurmountable evil in our own hearts. If you feel weighed down by these things, you're right to feel that way. And I want to encourage you once more to return to God's story. This time, the cloud of storytellers that I want to highlight are not game designers or authors or professors, but flowers. So this is chapter two, in which I learn hope and lament from the flowers. The year was 2020. And it started with promise, people. We rang in the new year on an international trip with my family in the Netherlands and Belgium. Dave and I felt so empowered. We took our small children on this international trip. Dave was playing shows with his band. We were hanging out with friends and family, leading worship at our church, traveling with our beer club. I'm in a beer club. Ask me about that another time. <laughs> Dave was working full-time downtown. I was a part-time professor here and a full-time mom, and these were mutually enriching occupations that provided balance and pleasure to me in my life. And then March came, and you know what happened. Dave's work came home, my classes went online, my childcare went away, all social gatherings stopped and all travel ceased. As a result, I was never alone. Always working, always caregiving. There were no longer clear boundaries between any of these things. All my social life, like my teaching, became disembodied or distanced. Essentially, I found myself face to face with loss that I could not ignore. COVID was a reminder that part of the human condition is suffering, sometimes suffering with no apparent good reason. In this season, I found myself being reminded again and again of one of the stories that Jesus tells. In John 12, 24, he tells the parable of the grain of wheat. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And I've lost my place, sorry. When Christ tells this parable, he's telling his followers that he's going to die to redeem them right? He's also inviting them and inviting us to willingly give up the things we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. I'd love to tell you that in March 2020, I just read this verse and then all my struggling resolved. That's not true. It was a little more complex than that. God's story was written on my heart, and the Spirit did remind me of this, but the process 
was once more God used echoes of his story in the world to reacquaint me with that story to which I so desperately needed to cling. So because we were all losing our minds, cooped up in our not enormous house, we went outside. And I started noticing things coming back to life around our yard, real things whose existence I had not previously contemplated, things with names that I did not know. I learned, for instance, that this little one is called Spring Beauty or Fairy Spud. I can also attest that I've never seen so much of this in my yard since 2020. God just knew that I needed those little beautiful weeds. These small beauties fed my soul, and I wanted more. So I started planting a variety of flowers and shrubs and trees in our yard. I loved doing something with my hands, and I reveled in the intricate, delicate splendor of the various blooms. I sensed that this was somehow important work particularly in a season of loss and suffering. This was also the summer of the George Floyd protests, so there was just a lot to lament in my life and in our collective lives. And I resonated deeply with this question and answer from every moment holy. I'll give you a second to read it. This is a liturgy for the planting of flowers. My flowers were indeed witnesses to a promise, reminders of a spreading beauty more eternal and therefore stronger than any evil, than any grief, than any injustice or violence. The reason I needed those flowers was because they filled me with hope, both in and beyond the world. But I also learned the power of lament from my flowers. Because if your experience of gardening is anything like mine, then you know that for every beautiful bloom, there are one or two dead blooms, if not one or two entirely dead plants altogether. I murder a lot of plants. One of the early lessons I learned was that of deadheading, cutting off spent blooms. This is a gardening basic. Uh, it encourages more blooms to form, and it gets rid of those unsightly, decaying, spent blooms. But deadheading is not always a good idea because that impulse to keep everything looking pretty can also keep seed pods from forming. With many varieties of flowers, allowing them to go to seed is the only way they will come back the next year, the only way their beauty can spread and bear fruit. There is a parable in this. Sometimes we are too eager to erase the ugly things in our lives, the painful things. We want to present a perfect, unblemished picture. I deadheaded some of my flowers to death in the first couple years of gardening, just hoping that they would bloom more. Well, not only did they not bloom more, but they never came back. I've now learned that often the best way to get a great spring bloom is to let things get a little bit ugly in the late summer and fall. Let those seed pods form, let the browning stems remain, let them fall over and burst open and spread the seeds around for next year's blooms. I've even learned to see beauty in this less glamorous moment of a plant's life. And I think we can find deep beauty in the times of our lives when we are not at our best, when we are not in bloom, when we're suffering loss, giving up things that we loved. Very often, 
God uses those times of suffering to invite us into deeper union with his suffering son who knows our pain. And often we cannot grow until we have acknowledged and lamented that decay and the sin and the brokenness in our lives, until we have given those things into his hand for redemption. Lilius Trotter paints these parables of the cross in nature, and her paintings invite me to pay attention to the broken parts of my life, the parts that don't seem like the subject for a watercolor painting, because my Savior willingly subjected himself to the same losses that I feel and bore the sins I cannot cast off so that he could impart new life to me. And I cling to the promise of new creation, of future glory, more magnificent than the most breathtaking of blooms. COVID and flowers and Lilius Trotter all converged in my life to invite me back into God's story, to teach me that part of that story involves slowing down and sitting in the reality of Christ's suffering and death. Not because these things are the end of the story, just as our suffering and loss in this world are not the end of the story, but because he will meet us in our suffering and we can give our losses to him, trusting that he will remain faithful and that those of us who, as the psalmist says, go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing our sheaves with us. I'm just going to gesture towards the last thing, chapter three, in which poetry enables me to live in the now and the not yet. My cloud of witnesses has expanded even further to include William Wordsworth, Christina Rossetti, Alfred Tennyson, and Anne Porter. Poetry is always engaged in an attempt to incarnate truths that are ultimately inexpressible. I think its job is to look at things as they really are, which means it must see things as they are right now, but also as they could be, or as they should be, as they will be in new creation. It is rationally impossible to hold these competing realities in your head at once, but poetic imagination provides an outlet for such transfigured vision. Vision that stands simultaneously inside and outside of time. We are on the cusp of Advent, and I expect many of us are already singing, come, O Redeemer, come, in our hearts as the tests and the papers pile up. Advent is a perfect time to be invited into the now and the not yet aspects of God's story. So I want to leave you with a poem for Advent by Ann Porter. I'm just going to read it to you and then I'll pray. We're at the winter solstice with its long nights. Wars are still not over. Weapons are heaped on weapons. Terror is hoarded like grain. Those who have no houses are sleeping out in the street scorched by the burning cold, and children are learning to starve before they learn to speak. But this December night is like no other night. Angels blaze in the pasture, and all the sheep are kneeling. The brambles have thrown open their sweet-smelling flowers, while somewhere back in the hills all the cocks are crowing, and there are brooks of torchlight streaming down the hillside, where the shepherds are. I'll try to catch up with the shepherds as they go searching for that holy child who's offering us his peace, who out of love for us has chosen to be born of a young, poor woman in a cattle shed. 
We're swaddled in strips of a torn shirt, just as the angel told us, he shines in the dark valley. God, thank you for inviting me into your story. And thank you for the many storytellers who have narrated your story to me over and over. Father, would you give these students sanctified vision to see your story unfolding everywhere they look? Would you arrest them with your truth made manifest not only to their rational minds, but to their senses, that they might taste and see your goodness in a continuous, repeated foretaste of that final day when our faith will become sight and we will see you face to face. In the meantime, I ask that you would sustain us with your story, that we would cling to its promise, the promise that has been fulfilled in your word made flesh, born in Bethlehem, crucified on a Roman cross, risen in glory, and seated at the right hand of the Father. The promise still to be fulfilled when that same risen Savior returns to make us and all things new. Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Praise God Don't be afraid.